I invite you to open your Bible. I hope you brought your Bible. We are a church that uses the scriptures. Exodus chapter 20. I was talking to a gentleman after the first service and he said he's been here for just two weeks, never been in a Protestant church before, never seen a church where they open the Bible and preach. And he just, he said, I love it. And I said, that's what our goal is here. I said, my job is a waiter. I'm supposed to get the food from the kitchen to the table and not mess it up on the way. That's my job. And so we are in Exodus chapter 20 today. We're starting a brand new series on the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, if you look at evangelicalism, uh, traditions usually in the Lutheran or Reformed tradition, Presbyterian, will spend quite a bit of attention on the law and on the Ten Commandments. You even see it in things like the Augsburg Confession, Westminster Confession, or the Heidelberg uh, Catechisms. Uh, Non-Reformed traditions, evangelical, sometimes Roman Catholic, don't spend nearly the amount of time on the law and the Ten Commandments. I never grew up hearing a series on the Ten Commandments. And this is part of God's Word. It's a very important part of God's Word. And so that's why we're really beginning the new year by looking at it. So the series, Ten Commandments, subtitle for the series is God's Pathway to Freedom. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. You do and God does. But I can tell you that an understanding of God's law is absolutely critical to flourish and find freedom in the Christian life. And there is so much confusion on it. And so that's why we're going to spend one Sunday per command for the next 10 weeks. Uh, there's no surprise we live in an age of moral confusion. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's all over our landscape. Increasingly, it's not just in the culture, it's in the church. And moral confusion that is damaging families damaging marriages, ruining lives, and doing great harm in the lives of so many people. And it is in the midst of this moral chaos and moral crisis in our culture that the Ten Commandments, friends, young people, I really hope you're tuned in. The Ten Commandments offer us a path to freedom, clarity, and hope. And we were going to see how this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover today. This is an introductory message, so I'm going to be doing a little bit more than normal, kind of like a seminary classroom and a sermon kind of combined in one. My goal is that we're out of here in time for the Lions and Packers game this evening. <laughs> because I want to see the Lions win. So that's, that's my goal. And we'll, 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 hopefully, uh, we'll hopefully get there. The Ten Commandments, it's no surprise, are controversial. They have been, and they will always be, even back, for example, in 1908. Woodrow Wilson, then president of Princeton University, gave a lecture to the student body on changing ethical standards. This is back in 1908. And he warned the student body by suggesting that they needed to avoid an overly literalistic view of the Ten Commandments. He said ethical decisions are complicated by a thousand circumstances, and he was nuancing and blurring the lines. Interestingly, we learned later on, Woodrow Wilson was in the midst of an adulterous affair while he gave that lecture. So, 
No wonder they were controversial and will continue to be. The goal of our 10-week series is to learn more about the Ten Commandments and the law of God in general. There is great confusion among God's people about the role of the law. When I speak about the law, I'm talking about what we would call the Mosaic Law, those 600 and some commands that are given from Exodus through Deuteronomy. And a lot of believers aren't sure what to do with that today. How does it apply? How does it not apply? Which parts apply? Where's the Ten Commandments in all of that? And the goal this morning is to lay the groundwork for this entire series so that we will have the proper interpretive grid. Because my thesis is until we get this straight, we're not equipped to live the Christian life as God intended. Once we get it straight, we are in a position to find freedom in a way that we probably have never known. So we come to the first commandment this morning. Have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Interesting, the original Hebrew actually says, literally, have no other gods before my face. That's Hebrew is very pictorial, uh, the language, the Hebrew language. No other gods before my face. Remember God above all else. Now, each week I'm going to have basically the same sermon outline. So this will not going to be real hard each week. We're going to have the what of the command. And then we're going to have the why of the command. And then the how of the command. And we'll just be walking through these one at a time. This morning, before I dive into the what of the first commandment, I need to spend some time, turn this into just a bit of a classroom. Hope you have your thinking cap on. And we're going to spend time looking at two things before we dive into the, the, the what. Number one, I want to give a brief introduction to the Ten Commandments. I know we're not all, all on the same page with our familiarity with the Bible. And so I want to just try to make sure we're all on the same page. Brief overview. What are the Ten Commandments exactly? And secondly, I'm going to spend a little more time even than that on the nature and purpose of the Old Testament law in general. What is the role of the law in the life of God's people? Again, I'll say it one more time. There is much confusion. And because of that, there is a lot of confusion when it comes to living the Christian life. And sadly, a lot of chaos. And so it is a very important subject. This is not just something for the academic classroom. This is real life stuff. Ideas have consequences. And our understanding of scripture has consequences. So first of all, let me just give a brief introduction. If you're taking any notes to the 10 commandments, as I said, the 10 commandments are a summary. They're kind of the core of what we call the larger law or the Torah, it's a Hebrew word that can be translated law or instruction. These were given to Moses on top of Mount Sinai in Egypt. And there's about 600 and some commands in this entire, what we would call the Mosaic law. And these were given to Moses about three months after the Jews were delivered from slavery in Egypt. The background is a fascinating passage. If you just back up a little bit in chapter 19 of Exodus, you will see the background of how these were given. The language here is ominous, to say the least. Chapter 19, I'm just going to read verses 16 to 20, where we're given the context of how Moses received these. On the morning of the third day, I'm in Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. 
and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Imagine that, what that would be like. Then Moses brought people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the fire. So the Ten Commandments really are the words out of the fire. That's really what they are. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So interesting, the people trembled, the mountain trembled, God descends in smoke and fire. 19, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the people answered him in, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And it is in that context that we get now, now to verse 20, where it says, God spoke all these words. These are not called the Ten Commandments in the original Hebrew. Some of you know that, but many of you don't. These are called the Ten Words, or the words, God's words. That's the title. And there's 10 of them. And even interestingly, different Christian traditions disagree about how to divide up the 10, but all agree there's 10 because it says there are 10 words. So you have to end up with 10 somehow or another. Interestingly, uh, in our city back in 1993, there was the second parliament on world religions, which was kind of a free-for-all circus, but it brought together 6,000 leaders from all the world's traditions trying to vote on what they had in common and all this. And one of the things they did in that parliament of world religions is that they took and they came up with something called a declaration of a global ethic and they took the Ten Commandments and they whittled them down to a manageable four that all the world religions could agree on. Wasn't that a wingding? Here they are. Thou sh this is true. Thou shalt not kill, steal, lie, or commit adultery. I mean, those are four good ones. No mention of God. Because when you get pantheist, theist, atheist, animist and everything else in the room you can't have commonality on a belief in a personal God and so the first few got left out completely now having said that I want to show something that is very important as we approach this study this is critical the ten commandments or these ten words let us note they do not begin with a commandment that's very important to understand this has gospel written all over it. I'm going to unpack this here for just a minute, but track with this. The Ten Commandments do not begin with a command. In fact, the book of Exodus has 19 chapters of salvation and deliverance before you get to any chapters on law. And that's worth chewing on and thinking about. That's gospel. In other words, God didn't take his people and give them the law and say, here, obey this, and then maybe I'll deliver you out of slavery. That's religion. But that's not Bible, and that's not gospel. Instead, God gave his Ten Commandments to his people only after he had delivered them from bondage and slavery. Night and day difference. 
He did not give the law and say, obey this, then I'll deliver you. First, he delivered them. Then he gave his law. 19 chapters of salvation and deliverance from oppression before any chapter on law. That is the gospel pattern. It always has been and always will be. First comes salvation. First comes election. First comes deliverance. Then comes the obligation to obey once we're alive. In other words, let me just state it one other way. Law keeping has nothing to do with getting saved. If you don't hear anything else I say today, young people, especially in kids, if you don't, if you don't hear, please hear that. That is Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Law keeping has nothing to do with getting saved. Having said that, a lot of people then conclude, well, the law then is not that important. That is a bogus conclusion. It is very important. The question, as my Hebrew professor, Dr. Walter Kaiser, used to say, important for what? You always got to finish the question. Is the law important? Of course the law is important. The law is important and always has been in the life of God's people. Important for what? That is the critical issue, but it has nothing to do with getting saved. That brings us now to something I'm going to spend just a little more time on, simply because if I don't lay this groundwork, we don't have the proper interpretive grid for going into a series on the Ten Commandments. So even if you're listening online today or you're listening to this delayed, I would encourage you to go over what I'm going to do in the next 10 minutes a couple times during this series because this is critical, and it's critical for discipling your children. Gentlemen, I hope you're spending intentional time discipling your kids in theology and evangelizing them and helping them come to grips and not just hoping the church and the youth group are doing the job. And this would be great stuff to be going over with your children again and again, because it is so foundational for the Christian life. So here's the second thing. What is the role of the Old Testament law in general for the believer? Because the obvious question, based on what I just said a minute ago, is this. If, it has not, if law keeping has nothing to do with getting saved, and it doesn't, then what was the purpose of the Old Testament law, and what is the role of the law today in the life of a believer? There is just massive confusion on that. And so let's try to clear it up. And to do that, I'm going to go to one of my heroes of the faith, John Calvin, who said, and he didn't, he, this is known by, this is known by no means original with Calvin, but he said there is, he called it the threefold use of the law. And this is good stuff. So I give full credit to John Calvin for popularizing this. But again, it wasn't original to him. But it's become known as the threefold use of the law. In other words, there were three main functions of the law in the life of God's people. And they still apply. And so let us dive into this before we get to the first commandment. And these are going to go up on the screen one at a time, just so that we can be clear. The first reason God gave his law, Mount Sinai, 600 and some commands, here's the law. First reason is the law reveals who God is and who we are. We're told this explicitly in the Bible. It wasn't given to save 
It wasn't given to help people find salvation, but it was given to show the people who God was and who he is and who we are. So the first thing the law does is it shows us who God is. Here's just one verse, Leviticus 11.44. You couldn't find it stated any more cogently. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. So right in the midst of the law and the Torah, you have that summarization phrase. Here's what the law is about. Be holy. Kadosh in Hebrew. It means cut differently, cut apart from the, the, the norm. You're different. Be holy because why? I am holy. So one of the functions of the law was to show us what God is like. And conversely, to show us who we are, which is what? Sinners in desperate need of a savior. And here, the verse is Romans 3.20. I might want to write the reference down. I'm going to read it here. I'm going to read it twice because this is so critical. Romans 3.20 is telling us one of the functions of the law was to show us who we are. Here's what it says. Romans 3.20. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. How, How could you say it any clearer? No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Now get ready for the next part. Brace yourself. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Close quote. So a lot of scholars, theologians, preachers over the years have said the law functions really as a mirror. It reflects back to us reality. Now I don't know about you, but... I find mirrors not having a whole lot of grace. Mirrors are brutal. And the, and the older you get, the more brutal they get. They don't massage the truth. They don't sugarcoat it. They don't Photoshop it. They don't do anything. They just show exactly what's standing in front of it. And all its glory right there. And a mirror is designed to do one thing, reflect reality as it is. And quite honestly, we want that. I mean, when it really comes down to it, we don't want a mirror that's not showing it. We don't want to look differently in that mirror and then go out and look foolish. We want to know exactly what we look. That is the function of the law, is a mirror. It is to expose your sin. It is to expose my rebellion. It is to announce that I will face judgment. You will face judgment. We are held to a standard of absolute moral perfection in the eyes of God, or we are going to face his wrath. That's one of the functions of the law. And in fact, um, even, this is even more frightening when you realize that God doesn't just command external compliance but internal compliance. And Jesus took the Ten Commandments and he went up another level with them in the Sermon on the Mount with several of them to show this. He said, you know what? It's not enough not just to commit adultery. I mean, adultery is bad. It's evil. But Jesus said, that's not enough. If you are fabricating sexual fantasies in your mind about somebody you're not married to, If you are lusting towards somebody else, you are already guilty before God. See, Jesus 
went right for the interior. <laughs> he regularly targeted the sinfulness of interior attitudes and motives and thoughts. He also talked about the external. But Jesus went to another level. He said it's not enough, for example, not just to kill somebody. I mean, we're not supposed to do that. Not a good thing. Take a baseball bat, go over and club your neighbor to death. That's, that's evil. However, Jesus was also very clear. If you're not forgiving somebody, if you're harboring a grudge towards somebody, if you're getting bitter in your heart towards somebody, you're already guilty. I'm already guilty. I've struggled with bitterness. Who hasn't? I've struggled with hatred. Who hasn't? I'm guilty. That's, the, that's that mirror thing shining back at me, pointing, saying it's not just shooting somebody or hitting them. It's not forgiving them. It's hating them. And Jesus went right down the line in some of these and showed over and over again, we're guilty. And that is one of the chief functions of the law. I was reading, uh, I was revisiting J.I. Packer's classic, Knowing God, recently. And he, he had a paragraph that just pierced. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to share the pain, so I'll share it here because I'll let it pierce all of us together here. So here, here it is. When it comes to the whole concept of thinking I'm a lot better than I am and the law showing me I'm not. Modern men and women, that would be all of us, by the way. Young people, kids. I mean, he's talking about us here today. Modern people are convinced... Modern men and women are convinced that despite all their minor sins, abusing alcohol, gambling, breaking traffic laws, using pornography, white lies, cheating, reading trashy novels, etc., that they are at heart thoroughly good folks. That should slice. That should slice me. It should slice you. Because we're standing here and we're busted. We're busted. That's one of the functions of the law of God. No wonder Jeremiah the prophet said the heart is deceitful above all things. No wonder Augustine had that great prayer and he said, oh God, protect me from the lust of self-vindication. Because that's one of the things we do the best is we manipulate to vindicate ourselves. And it's evil. The second function of the law, according to the Old Testament in the Bible, is that the law helped maintain civil order in society. Now here you got to understand something. There's, the Bible doesn't use these words, but great creeds and good theologians through the centuries have said, you know, when you look at those 600 and some commands, they really fall into three categories. There are laws we would call civil laws, these dealt with things, I mean, this, these could deal with anything from inheritance rights to bankruptcy laws, to criminal statutes, to public health laws, dietary laws, all, this, all the rest. These were designed to help society stay civil. They were laws. So in the, among these 600 laws, you have these, what would be called, there are civil laws in there. Then there's a second category of laws, that the, like the Westminster Confession, has this three-part breakdown. These are called ceremonial laws. You say, what are those? Well, those had to do with how sacrifices were prepared, how priests were to function, or how the tabernacle was to be set up in a certain way with all the utensils. 
Those were, there's a whole bunch of those laws, especially in Leviticus, and those are ceremonial laws. Again, the Bible doesn't use that phrase, but there's clearly that category of laws. Now, here's the point. You get to the New Testament, books like Galatians and Hebrews are very clear that the civil laws, and especially the ceremonial laws, those parts of the law in general, no longer are binding on New Testament believers. We don't sacrifice anymore. We don't have a temple and a tabernacle. And we don't operate in that way anymore. So it's very clear those were fulfilled in Christ and that the civil laws that were needed in Old Testament Israel don't apply anymore. However, there's a third category. And that is what would be called the moral laws or the moral law. This is captured in whole sections like Leviticus 18 to 22, which is called the Holiness Code or other moral laws, and they're summarized at their purest in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is a summary of the moral law of God. It's that third category of law. And when you get to the New Testament, unlike civil law, unlike ceremonial law, the New Testament is very clear in the preaching of Jesus and the apostles and in the theology of the Apostle Paul that the moral law is still binding on God's people. That is what the Ten Commandments fall under. They're not part of the ceremonial law. They're not part of the civil law. They are the essence of God's moral law, and they are still binding on us today. That's a second reason for the law in the Old Testament, was to maintain civil order in that culture and society. But there was a third purpose that Calvin identified for the use of the law. And this one really has the most relevance for us today as a Christian. And if you are a Christian, I know not everybody is, but if you know Christ as Savior, here it is. The law shows God's people. Are you one of God's people? Do you know Christ as Savior? If you do, the law shows God's people how to find freedom. And my goodness, do we need that message today. Psalm 119, 97 and 98. And think about this. Evangelicals don't, Bible believers don't talk like this. How I love your law. Have you ever thought, do you love God's law? We usually say law, oh, that's, that's that Old Testament stuff. How I love your law, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Namely, God's law is designed and targeted to those who are already saved to show them how to please the Lord and thrive and find freedom. Again, Dr. J.I. Packer, quote, great quote, the root cause of our moral flabbiness is that we have neglected God's law. We've neglected the Old Testament law. Why? Because the law shows God's people how to flourish in the universe he set up. You know what? Young people, hear this. God set up a moral universe. And just like there are physical laws and consequences, if you break them, you jump off buildings, what do you do? You go down. Right? Law of gravity. God set up a moral universe. Likewise, there are consequences there are actions and there are consequences. If we operate in the structures God set up, we can flourish. If we try to buck that, 
go against that and rebel against the moral order God set up, we're going to hit a brick wall. And if we keep doing it, we're going to walk into very dark places in our lives. And so one of the features of the law was to show God's people how to flourish within the way God set things up. The great tragedy is that so many, some are here this morning, this may be you. So many people believe, you know what, this is what they believe. Real freedom comes from being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, in any way I want. And there's a word where that leads, depression. And there's an epidemic of depression today. There is a massive epidemic of depression in Western culture today. I was uh, dipping back into a classic, one of my favorite books, Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella. He wrote it with a group of sociologists about 30 years ago. And the phrase he uses to capture Western culture, American culture, is excessive individualism. He nailed it there. He said, our culture is flooded with slogans expressing excessive individualism. Say slogans like what? Give you a couple of them. You be you. What's that except the recipe for going to hell? That's what it is. Or be true to yourself. Or the gospel according to Disney World. Follow your heart. Tell you where that'll lead you. And all sorts of depravity and debauchery. All kinds of slogans. Find yourself. Bella writes this, quote, and this is as a secular sociologist looking at contemporary culture. Quote, the irony in all of this is that when we think we're the most free, you know, by following our own heart, we're actually most captive to our own culture at that point. And we're blind to it. And that's the great tragedy of it all. All right, those are the three-fold use of that's the three-fold use of the law. I will refer to that again. I'm not going to spend that much time on it again because this is the first sermon, but it's critical, I think you can see, for understanding and interpreting the Ten Commandments. So are the Ten Commandments still in force? Yes. Why? Because they're part of the moral law, not the ceremonial law, not the civil law. That makes all the difference in the world for how you look at them. With that, we're going to dive in, and the what is very simple. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's stated in just a few words. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So there's the deliverance. 19 chapters of deliverance. Now comes law. That's, that's gospel. And here's the first one. You shall have no other gods before my face. Pretty straightforward. First commandment says, don't give ultimate allegiance to any but to Yahweh, the Lord God, because there is no other true God. So the first commandment would say, let's just tease this out a bit. Don't worship the sun, the moon, or the stars. Something the Old Testament saints were regularly uh, warned against. Don't worship Baal. Don't worship Molech. Don't worship Chemish or Dagon or golden calves. Not a good idea. Don't worship Zeus. Don't worship Apollo. Don't worship Zeus. 
Don't worship Mao, Marx, or Lenin. Don't worship the earth. For heaven's sakes, don't worship the climate. For heaven's sakes, don't worship yourself. (laughs) Don't worship material goods or pleasure or sex or prestige or religion or food or status or your spouse or your children. Don't worship your ancestors. Don't worship Buddha or pagan deities. You are to only worship the Lord God. That's the what? Second point of the sermon. Why? Well, there's been suggestions by critics that this is an insecure tribal deity who was afraid of the competition. And so he issued this one right up front. Is that what's going on in the first commandment? The obvious answer is no. First commandment was given for at least two very good reasons. You might want to write these down. Number one. Because there is only one true and living God who is worthy of all worship. I'm just going to read three verses to back this up. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear Shema in Hebrew. It's called the Shema. The Jews still call this the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. Exclusivity. Total exclusion to the Lord God himself. Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I, am Yahweh. Apart from me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 8, 13, the Lord God Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. So the first why is because there is only one true and living God and he is worthy of total allegiance by his creatures, period. But there is a second why behind the first commandment and that is for our own benefit. You say, well, exactly how? Well, in the first commandment, God is graciously telling us this. False idols will never deliver for you. We'll all chase them from time to time. Some are here chasing them right now. But they will never deliver for you. And God wants you to know that. They cannot rescue you from judgment. They cannot rescue you from the coming wrath of God. And they certainly can't give freedom. All they do is enslave people. And God wants to protect his people from that. He wants to protect you from that. And so he gave the first commandment. God is saying in the first commandment, don't depend on idols. They will not come through for you. Money can't. Food cannot. Alcohol cannot. Friends cannot. Your spouse cannot. Kids cannot. Sex cannot. Religion cannot. And go down the list. All the things we chase. God says none of it is going to provide salvation, deliverance, or freedom. The tragedy is those who seek to find themselves in the language of today, they often end up turning away and again walking into great darkness, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, and even physically. It's no wonder when you read some of the great skeptics of the age, like Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a pastor's son, 
and became a brilliant philosopher, intellectually, humanly speaking, but one of the most uh, vicious atheists in the last 150 years was so pessimistic about this life. I did is read people like Kafka or Freud or Darwin or Dawkins or Sartre or Camus or the novelist Virginia Woolf. People who did not believe in a personal God and their writings are strewn with dark themes because they didn't believe in a personal God at all. And when you don't believe in a personal God, the, the, the issue is not, well, should I worship something? Everybody's going to worship. The question is what? And God is telling us in the first commandment, if you worship the wrong stuff, if you chase the wrong stuff, you're going to end up in very dark places. Very dark places. Virginia Woolf wrote these words in January 1915, just over 100 years ago. Again, a brilliant, intellectually gifted novelist but a committed atheist. And she wrote in her journal, January 1915, these haunting words. The future is dark, which is about the best thing that can be said about the future, I think. It's dark. And just a couple years later, she loaded up her overcoat. There goes my thing. She loaded up her overcoat with rocks, heavy rocks, walked into a river and drowned herself. That's despair. That is despair. Friends, you want to know who the freest person in the world is? I'll tell you. The freest person in the world is the person who's been set free in Christ. That's the one the world looks at and says, they're not free. They're submitting to a God who has all these demands. They don't understand the reality of the gospel. The freest person is the person who's been set free in Christ, set free from sin, and set free, thankfully, from ourselves. The tyranny of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Corinthians 3.17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Love that verse. Or Jesus says, John 8.32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You want to know who's not free? You want to know who's not free? Let's just flip this around. It's those who are enslaved by chasing the wrong stuff. And if they don't turn around, it increasingly enslaves them even worse. The person who is involved in pornography and premarital sex and adultery and homosexual behaviors increasingly becomes trapped in a very dark web. Or the person binging on video games. Gentlemen, some of us are spending way too much time on video games when we have family responsibilities and it's time to grow up. Or the person binging on online shopping or social media. The person who's become ensnared in online gambling, which is everywhere these days. Can't watch any football games or any sporting events without online gambling commercials these days, online gaming or chat rooms, or the person who's chasing food and alcohol, the person chasing money and is not tithing, the person chasing their weekends and violating and ignoring the Sabbath. These are the people who are the least free because they increasingly become enslaved to themselves and become enslaved to the devil. Paradox of the gospel, and this is what the world can't understand. 
is that true freedom is only found in complete submission to the one true and living God. That just, that's cuckoo bananas to the world. Cuckoo bananas is the Hebrew phrase. That's just cuckoo bananas to the world. They don't get that. How can you call submission to a deity who has all these commands freedom? Well, it's no different than cruising on a mountain highway, which Becky and I have done a lot because her parents live in the mountains. I'm thankful for those guardrails out there. I don't know about you, but I am. I don't view those as a hindrance. I don't view those as restrictive. I view those as put there out of concern for my safety and the safety of others flying down that mountain. And there's two ways to look at guardrails. You can look at them and say, wow, how restrictive. Or you can look at him and say, wow, I'm glad those are there because I feel a lot safer staying in the proper channels. Exactly the same with God's law. All right, lastly, the how. How do we, how do we honor the first commandment today? As we'll see with other of the Ten Commandments in this series, the Ten Commandments were transformed by the coming of Christ. That doesn't mean they don't apply. It means how they apply is a bit different. Uh, Kevin DeYoung suggests the word transposed. So same melody, different key. It's just you, you look at it a little bit differently. So the moral law still applies. We're going to see that through all Ten Commandments. But the way the Ten Commandments apply and the way the Christian looks at them and obeys them has been transformed through the lens of the New Testament and the lens of Jesus. So let me give you an example. Let's take this first commandment. How does it apply today? We can think of the first commandment and its relationship to Jesus as the tale of two mountains. Say, what, what do you mean? Well, God came down in Mount Sinai when he originally gave it. And what did he say on Mount Sinai? Don't have any other gods, only worship me. Mount Sinai. Fast forward 1,500 years to the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the second mountain in my tale of two mountains. Mount of Transfiguration. What's he say there? He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So, the conclusion is that honoring the first commandment today for the New Testament believer is done by holding Jesus and honoring him as supreme. Hebrews 1-2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So how do you keep the first commandment today? You listen to Jesus. You obey Jesus' commands. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, here's great news for lawbreakers. That's all of us. Great news for lawbreakers is the good news of the gospel. And it's this, that Jesus came, and you know those 600 and some commands? He kept the law of God perfectly. A lot of evangelical Christians just go right to the crucifixion and forget that. The great Greek scholar, G. Gresham Machen, on his deathbed, brilliant New Testament scholar, was asked for some final words. And one of the very last things he said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. What is that? That means he understood something the Bible teaches that a lot of us miss. Jesus, before he became the perfect sacrifice, kept the law and earned our salvation by complete moral perfection. Then he offered his life on the cross where God poured out all the punishments, all the curses, and all the judgment 
on him so that sin was legitimately punished and justice was done. And then the person that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, their sin is transferred or imputed to him and his righteousness is transferred or imputed to the sinner. That is the gospel. And it means this, to be saved today. If you do, again, hear that. To be saved, if you want to know, how do I get saved and know God? We have to look to Christ, not to law-keeping for our salvation. Martin Luther discovered this 500 years ago. He had this Roman Catholic monk, and he was going crazy because he was trying to keep all these rules and laws, and he couldn't. Nobody can. And he thought that his justification before God and avoiding judgment was flawless law-keeping. And he was going crazy until one day, through some help from his head vicar and teaching the book of Romans at the local university, he came across Romans 1.17, and it talked about the righteousness of God, and he realized it was a righteousness that was available to him by believing in Christ alone, by faith alone. And he realized, I don't earn my salvation by law-keeping. The law hangs like a death sentence around my neck. But Christ, he is the one who bought and earned my salvation by perfect obedience to the law, active obedience of Christ, and then made it available to me through faith in his name. All right, time to land the airplane. Summons. Two summons this morning, and we'll end. So we look at the Ten Commandments. I have to say these, 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 these are critical. Number one. Summons number one. No summons, no sermon. We must be born again to avoid hell and gain eternal life. Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. Meaning you have to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest news for lawbreakers like you and I. It is the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be forgiven. And it's the only way to get a new status before God. You say, what is that new status? Well, here it is. I am risen with Christ. I am one with Christ. I am in union with Christ. And the Holy Spirit is now alive in me. That's the new status. And so I ask you, do you know Christ as Savior? Or are you just depending on being religious and getting some religious goodies every once in a while by occasionally attending church? That doesn't save anybody. You must repent and you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence is a new hunger to follow him. That's summons number one. Second summons is to those who say, yeah, that is me. I, I'm all in on that. I, I am born again. I'm trusting Christ. So here's the second summons to those of us who are saved. A new status brings new responsibility and new privilege. So what's the new responsibility? To kill sin. I have a license to kill, James Bond would say. I have a license to go to war with sin, with the Bible, with the church and church community, with fasting and prayer and holiness. I have new weapons with the Holy Spirit alive in me to kill sin and choose obedience. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What's the new privilege? The new privilege is the incredible joy offered to Christians who are choosing to walk in obedience to Christ's commands. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands, there's that language of law, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he doesn't say that's the one who's saved. He that, that's not how you get saved. 
Whoever has my commands and keeps him, that's the one who's loving me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So I'm going to close with a quote from an old Dutch theologian. I was reading recently The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bavink, an old Dutch theologian. And I was coming to the end of the book this week, and I came to a line, and I sat up in my recliner next to Becky where we were reading Scripture, and I said, found my closer for Sunday. <laughs> so here's Herman Bavink from 1909, Dutch theologian. Quote, you want to know who the freest person in the world is? The believer who is justified in Christ is the freest creature in the world. That is gospel, and that is what the first commandment is all about. Amen? Amen. Father, we are thankful for the Ten Commandments, and we want to learn about them. As we sing right now, I pray you would be at work in the next ten weeks connecting dots for Christians and opening blinded eyes of those who are not yet saved. May we become passionate about your law and what it was designed to do in the life of a believer today. In Jesus' name, amen.